Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivani. We've had some fascinating conversations on Raise the Line on a wide range of issues related to women's health, including menopause, fertility, birth control, incontinence, and others. But today's conversation might be the most, shall we say, stimulating of all. I'm delighted to welcome Anna Lee, who's the co-founder and head of engineering at Linus, a woman-led sexual wellness company that built the world's only smart vibrator that improves understanding of sexual pleasure and orgasms through biofeedback data and science. Linus also has a broader mission to expand understanding and research in sexual health and to destigmatize female sexuality. Anna was previously a mechanical engineer at Amazon, launching the Amazon Dash Button's original concept and the Kindle Voyage page press technology. She's been named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list, which is how we met at a conference in in Israel and Detroit after that, and has been covered in numerous national publications for her groundbreaking work. She's also a prominent creator or anti-influencer on TikTok with nearly 400,000 followers. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This is very exciting to kind of talk about the nerdier side of it all. Totally. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's definitely a concept that ever since I saw what you were working on at the Forbes conference, I was like, our audience has to learn about this because it's one of those things that isn't talked about enough and it affects, you know, half the population directly. Totally. So before we get into that, like, tell us a bit more about yourself. You have a really interesting background. You became an engineer, you trained at Berkeley, but what got you into the space? Yeah, it's a good question. Honestly, I, so I grew up in Korea till I was about eight and then moved to the U.S. and my parents immigrated with the idea of the American dream. And I grew up in a actually like extremely conservative and religious family where we never talked about sex. So I always have to tell people me doing this now, like where I can talk about interviews or, you know, talk about our company. Like this is all kind of a seven year journey for me as well, because I was scared of my own body to my mid twenties. And so I never thought I would be an entrepreneur one and also especially in the sex toy industry, but it's one of those kind of beautiful life moments where I was at Amazon and as much as I loved it, I just realized that there's a superpower in being a engineer with like being a woman and having a perspective of how we design products or how do we build products that actually cater to serving the population you're building for and realizing how male dominated the sex toy industry was. And then as we kind of started looking deeper into it, seeing like how what the lack of research there is on female sexual function. And so it just felt like a nice combination of things that came together of being like, oh, we need to build something that actually furthers the industry and also just bring out the like be able to destigmatize the taboo around female sexuality. Totally. And and I think, you know, you kind of grew up in the over the past decade, Lioness has grown up in that there's been so many medical devices that have become consumerized, right? So we've talked about in previous meetings about like smartphone based electrocardiograms, smartphone based Mm -hmm. electroencephalograms. And I'd love to hear more about kind of, you know, how that trend has been. And like, you know, you guys are the first, I believe, and maybe the only smart vibrator. And I think you have like the largest data set too of like sexual pleasure in women. So can you talk a bit about some of some of that? 
Yeah. So actually, when we originally started the company, we came in with the idea that we wanted to make an AI vibrator, that it was going to vibrate and move the more you got to learn about you and the data. And so one of the things we had to do was starting to look at the sex research around sexual function. How do we even measure what an orgasm looks like? What does arousal look like? How does research quantify that? And one of the things we realized is there's very, very, very little papers on it. And so the first paper that's still the probably the mo- one of the most well-cited is from uh, led by Bolin in 19. 1982. And it was a sample size, I believe, of eight women or like something in like the sub 20 women. And then so he is charting out pelvic floor contractions as the orgasm, which is a really, really great starting point. But it's, it's wild that we don't have any more research, really, that's like kind of charting those things out. And so I think when we started, it's interesting to come into the consumer side of one kind of battling the stigma of everything. But then also the term sex tech wasn't actually coined as a term yet when we first started the company. And so it was a constant battle between people seeing us as a pornographic company. I think investors and like banks even seeing it as pornographic, not wanting to touch it, the space, but then also bringing in all this biofeedback data and knowing that we can kind of track public floor contractions and then kind of pitching it back to researchers and medical like researchers and academic researchers. And they're also like a little nervous to touch sex toys. So it kind of started out definitely on a kind of a belief that we just felt so passionate that we track everything else in our lives in terms of biofeedback on your sleep, your health, like all these aspects, but why we're not doing it for sex, especially for women. Um, So it really was like a blind faith. And I think Sometimes I'm like, wow, maybe we are starting a little bit too early because like now it's great that there's a term sex tech and there's an industry and there's numbers behind that industry. But definitely when we started, I think it was such a novel concept that it really was like a, and, you know, like smart things were kind of talked about as like are too many things getting smart, like and what purpose. And so it was really like fighting for our space there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They're often these innovations and then there's this hype cycle around them. But as a first mover, you're basically helping create the category. Um, I remember even for osmosis, you know, in other fields of education, there were terms like flipped classroom and active versus passive learning, but not mm-hmm. in health, not in medical school, not in medical education as much. And so it was very lonely in the beginning. And if you're able to survive long enough, uh, there's a guy we had in the podcast named Burke Smith who said this great thing, which is if you're able to stick around long enough, your timing is perfect. And so <laughs> it, it, it does feel like your timing is really good now, at least from the outside in, where obviously your TikTok growth has been great. Um, you know, I don't know much about kind of the product and the sales and stuff, but we're going to get into some of that, that there has been a lot of interest in women's health. And, you yeah. know, some of the investors and people are recognizing that, yeah, half the world is women and, and we need to pay attention to issues um, that ranging from, again, menopause to um, contraception and things like that, that, that could all be improved. So tell us a bit about kind of the actual product and like how it works about the data sets you're collecting and what kind of work you're doing with those da- with that data. Yeah, so we have a rabbit style vibrator. So it's part of it is inserted vaginally or anally. And then there's a little nub that's like the clitoral nub uh, that vibrates. So it looks just like a rabbit style vibrator. But what we've changed is basically we've put in four sensors that are measuring your pelvic floor contractions, your involuntary pelvic floor contractions, which is one of the best indicators for arousal and orgasms. 
Um, so when we like to find what an orgasm is, we're looking at rhythmic pelvic floor contractions. There are other physiological things that happen, like increase in heart rate, your breath, uh, your perspiration, pupils dilate. So there are all different types of things that people usually track in research. But pelvic floor contractions is one of the, I would say, easiest barriers to it, but also just a very recognizable pattern that happens. So you would use the vibrator just like a normal vibrator, and then you can pair it to your phone. And what you're getting is the biofeedback data that you've collected in terms of the involuntary pelvic floor contractions. So we always tell people like, what if I have a penis? Like, can I still use the product? I'm always like, everybody has pelvic floor muscles. So whether you insert it anally or vaginally, it completely works the same. You'll still get the same data. So what we've been doing now is we partner and we try to look. So currently we have the world's largest data set on uh, female physiological sexual function, which is really amazing. And it feels like a big responsibility of us being like, okay, so what can we learn from this? So our hypothesis was always that in terms of like for people with penises and um, cis men, when they go into the doctor's office for erectile dysfunction, the first thing they're checking for, especially in your like when you're early, like younger ages, they're checking for cardiovascular disease because they know there's a correlation between erectile dysfunction, cardiovascular disease, and there's different things you can know from um, sexual function. But for women, we don't really have that. And there's different papers that'll quote anything from like 30 to 80% of women experience female sexual dysfunction at some point in their life. And I think it's, you know, the common thing we hear in movies and things or, you know, the funny joke of like, you know, women are so complicated. We don't understand women. We don't understand how they work, why they don't have orgasms, all of that. And I think for us, we just know that it's just because one, we don't know enough. And so some of the really cool things we've been able to see with our data is one, just the patterns that happen. So being able to collect exactly what patterns we're looking at, what change, what changes them. So different external factors, whether it's things like caffeine, alcohol, what those things have changes on on the the data side of the pelvic floor contractions, but then also actually seeing just general pelvic floor function, being able to see like how they're contracting. So say they have like any sort of pelvic floor dysfunction, seeing kind of what the baseline is, does vibration actually change that pelvic floor contraction or the strength of those muscles? And I know there's recently some, uh, I think Mount Sinai is working on like how vibrations can actually have, um, can help with urinary incontinence. So it kind of starts going into this big field of, well, what can vibrators do for people and how do we actually track those measurements of success or changes in body? And so my favorite thing I always tell people is uh, we had a athlete who's been a really long time user of the Linus and she came back and she was like, hey, something's wrong. Like the data is looking really odd. It's like flatlined. And I think maybe the vibrator is broken. And so we were kind of like going through, she sent it in. We're like looking at diagnosing. We're trying to look at the software, firmware, hardware. We couldn't find anything wrong with it. And then we're looking at her data and she's like, we're like, dude, does something happen on this date when the data started looking weird? And she's like, oh yeah. She's like, I had a sports injury. She had, she's like, I had a concussion. And then we all, I just remember all of us just sitting there being like, I think the data is from maybe the concussion flatlining your orgasms and not that the vibrator itself is like something's wrong with the sensors. And so that was something we got to kind of look at deeper as like a, a potential case study of like, you know, like traumatic brain injuries, uh, what that has in terms of an effect on your orgasms or vice versa. So we always say like, I think what we're doing is we're finding that orgasms are the canary in the coal mine for healthcare implications and like what that means for the rest of your overall health. That is fascinating. Like I, I love that analogy to obviously the 
circulatory health in men and you know obviously erectile dysfunction is something that's been studied for decades because you know with men. so much funding <laughs> and research it's wild <laughs> yeah i mean exactly i mean but again that hopefully and we can talk about that are you seeing that change like are you seeing a lot more interest now in women's health and the work you're doing like uh because of that because yeah. of, because of uh, everything's been unleashed or no yeah, I think there's definitely a growth. I know for a fact, like women's health is definitely un understood as a really underserved and under-researched portion, right? Like even if we're looking at clinical drug trials and what animal, what gender of animal they're using, a lot of times previously, it was always like male, like for example, male mice versus using female mice as well. So I think just overall health in general, we're seeing a huge trend. And now there's funding and focus to make sure we understand women's health overall. I would say sexual function, especially when it comes to things like pleasure and arousal is still I would say like, it's still a privileged topic in terms of like, it's not the core of like, what's important to every person. And I think not seen as still overall health and overall wellness. And so I would say there's still a huge stigma and taboo in this space specifically. So when we say like women's sexual health, when there is funding in that space, a lot of times it'll focus more on fertility, pelvic floor function. Um, but when we kind of bring in sexual pleasure, it gets a little bit still a little taboo but i think i think we're just it's in the waves of it changing over time but definitely still a challenge now yeah and that, that's again one of the main reasons we're having you on because we want to expose our audience to it because they're the ones who are going to be providers who have a lot of yes. authority and respect and if they can have those open conversations with their parents uh, with their patients like for example a um and parents like, and parents yeah exactly <laughs> and they're uh, uh, you know, say somebody becomes a psychiatrist, a couples counselor, like clearly sex is one of the core things there. And maybe, you know, the work you're doing, the data that, that people are using from your company could be used to hopefully elucidate things psychiatrically, mental health wise, even what you mentioned here with maybe concussions and how that relates to just, just normal physiological function. I will say the other piece that this reminds me of is another guest we had on the podcast is Rick Doblin who since mm. the 1980s has been working to legalize MDMA for mm. for various mental health conditions, but also just in general. And he, he made this point too, that like really they're focused on PTSD first. They've done two very successful phase three clinical trials on combat veterans and, and people who've experienced sexual assault, mm. uh, like rapes and whatnot. And they have found that 60, about two thirds of the patients with severe PTSD after therapy that was augmented with MDMA uh, are now symptom free of PTSD. And some of these people were had PTSD for five, 10, 15 years. And he made the point that it was easy for people, uh, for Congress, for researchers, for NIH funders to get behind, let's treat combat veterans and victims of rape for PTSD mm. using these psychedelics. So how do you get somebody from like, you know, a pathological condition to, to normal? The analogy here is like incontinence, which I know a lot about because I'm not personally, but my mom uh, is a physical therapist who's been treating incontinence for decades. Um, you know, biofeedback, pelvic floor therapy, Kegels, those kind of things. How do you get people from like, you know, incontinent to continent? And mm. the next next wave, though, and what, what Rick Doblin and others want to do in the psychedelic space is how do you take somebody who's like normal or average and get them to flourish, get them to thrive. Mm -hmm. And your data set obviously can be used and device can be used for the research from abnormal to normal. But also, you know, I think it's a worthy goal for people to focus on the things that help people thrive and flourish. 
um, like so whether psychedelics, sex tech, these previously taboo subjects, I think are extremely important for us to all invest in and, and work on, which is again, one, one reason I'm so excited about what you're working on. So tell us a bit about, you know, you have the core product, you have the core data set, like what, what are your main kind of goals this year that you can, that you can share? Or do you have any other products in development or, or research studies that you want to talk about? And then where do you see the company in like five years? Mm, that's a good question. So I think for us, one of the big things is that we, it, we kind of teeter on a really interesting, we told the line between being an e-commerce product where we're cons- very consumer facing and then also doing the work behind like getting, empowering researchers to be able to do different studies and understanding. So I think for us last year, one of the greatest, one really exciting thing that happened was an abstract by, uh, led by Jim, Dr. Jim Faust was published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine that was uh, using the line as vibrators with 58 participants and then seeing one, it was a validation study of like, base, does the Linus vibrator enable getting the same biofeedback pelvic floor contraction data that you would get at a lab facility where you go into this lab, you get this uh, device, it's like a photoplysmograph that uh, you insert vaginally, and then you're basically sitting in this lab trying to have an orgasm so you can collect this data. And so does it do they get that same exact data? And so it, it was a small study, but the validation of, you know, that in the 58 people, they're able to identify that orgasm in the same way. So one of the things that makes us excited is like now you're we're opening it up into this concept of like, this is stuff that's like in your home, in real time, in your daily use of life, like how that data looks, right? Like versus you having to go into the lab. And I think it also enables a larger group of people that is better representative than people who have the ability to go into a lab or live near a facility that can do that. And so I think for us now, it's really focusing on figuring out how to get these researchers to get funded and then have these understandings of studies on continuing with like pelvic floor contractions. What do we know about orgasms? What do we know that could change and what factors will change it? So I think this year, that's like our big focus is to continue just doing more research with the data and having researchers who are interested in getting them, empowering them to be able to use the lioness and then the data around it to kind of get more information and research out there. So I think for us, the mission has always been to destigmatize female sexual pleasure and through science and research. And so being able to continue to do that for our brand uh, and obviously with the component of we are still consumer facing at the end of the day. And so we're always trying to continue to sell more products. And then I think the next big thing for us is that we know that a rabbit style vibrator is can be limiting. It doesn't fit for all body types or all form factors. Some people have different preferences. We've definitely gotten feedback of people want to be able to use it in like, um, especially like in heterosexual uh, sex, like paired sex relationships. And so how do you use something that is inserted and but also have get the data at the same time. And so it's continuing to build out products that can actually be more of a measurement tool. And then also working with researchers on the question of like, well, if there was a measurement tool where you can actually get as much information like vaginal dryness, like what does that actually look like? And all of these different things, like how can we help build those things out for you to help build a better understanding, more platforms for data um, and all of that. So it we it's it's always an interesting challenge, I would say, like this year, it's just honing in on the data that we currently have and being like, what can we tell people about the data? We know that right now what we've seen is that there's unique patterns of orgasm. So everyone almost has like a unique identifier. So, for example, like my orgasm rhythmic pattern data will look different from 
my co-founders, right? And like being able to distinguish the two. Um, and so we've almost seen like some people have different patterns because I would say historically, we've only seen the what has been defined as an orgasm is like a rhythmic squeeze and relax of data. But we've seen some people have what we call the volcano type, which is like a huge explosion of force and then a huge drop down, not much of a rhythmic contraction. And then some that we call an avalanche where it starts much higher in force and has the squeeze and relax, but it goes down in force over time. So it's interesting to see that we're seeing other patterns where people are like, no, this is still an orgasm. And so kind of bringing it into the research world of, well, maybe we need to increase what the definition of an orgasm, what that looks like. Um, Cause it's actually a pretty hotly debated topic. I would say on like what the definition of an orgasm is. So I would say this year, it's like focusing on the data that we have and seeing what we can continue to learn and expand from how do we get people to know learn more things about their body but I would say in the five years it's continuing to actually um, I think one thing we know that we know how to do and my bread and butter is to build products and understand exactly how to manufacture something or integrate sensors and then get it out into mass production and so using kind of our skill sets and then with our passion for destigmatizing female sexual wellness and continuing to help researchers and doctors really be able to do that in their fields. That's so fascinating and really top of mind for me right now, because literally, I mean, we talked, you know, this and we talked about this right before the podcast started. I'm back in Baltimore restarting medical school, my third year of med school using osmosis. And so we've been relearning ECGs and I just watched the entire mm-hmm. electrocardiogram mm-hmm. ECG series. And this is, as you probably know, uh, over a hundred year old technology and the amount of stuff you can tell about the heart and how it functions based on a 12 leave ECG it's remarkable, right? Like in terms wow. of deviation, in terms of, uh, you know, bundle blocks, in terms of has somebody had an infarct or ischemia in the past. And similarly, the work that you're doing, the signals you're getting, the data set you're getting in, you know, from more diverse and inclusive set of people than the people, as you said, the eight people who could go into a lab <laughs> and like somehow get, have an organism in a lab yeah. setting. Um versus more natural settings and many more people is why I think it's so exciting. I know, you know, the whole thing about the lab thing, there's another one, there's a university, Rutgers University, uh, led by Dr. Barry Kamasurak. They do like an fMRI brain scan during an orgasm to see like what your, how your brain is like, what lights up and all of that. And I, I love the concept. (laughs) It's so cool, but it's, it's so funny if you ever like Google image the f- photos, like they're wearing like this Hannibal Lecter style mask <laughs> and they're basically going into this fMRI and you can't bring a vibrator. It has to be all, so they have to train um, to only use manual stimulation with your hand or you're able to bring your partner. But the whole thing is you can't move your head the whole time. You're yeah. hearing these like clicking sounds. And I was just like, what an, it, it's just so cool. And also just, wild to think that's like the things we have to do to understand anything about sex you know <laughs> that's remarkable that's so fun i want to see those images later uh, of yeah, how they yeah. did that <laughs> um that's crazy so yeah okay well um some product development data sets more research by the way on the research side and you know obviously osmosis is not part of elsevier elsevier is one of the largest publisher of health and scientific research and we're just launching a rare disease journal soon so they can't keep launching journals um and I'm curious, well, something we can follow up on is like, you know, Science Direct, are there, like, could you immediately find all these researchers who at some point published something about pelvic floor biofeedback and yeah. sexual wellness? It could be a cool thing to explore. That'd be really cool. Yeah, the pelvic floor stuff, I think, is such a great entrance point, I think, as you're saying, is like, 
if it does, like if vibrations, we know that can help urinary incontinence or the baseline of pelvic floor muscle strength, like before there's vibration to after an orgasm, they're seeing like there's a drop in uh, pelvic floor contraction, the the baseline of how strong or how tight the vaginal muscles are. And so there's some really cool things there that I think anecdotally, I've heard so many great things from PTs and pelvic floor therapists and doctors. And so now it's kind of bringing it all together of like, what if we can just get a handful of data and just seeing if there's anything there and then just continuing from that. Totally. That was super exciting. Switching gears real quick. You yeah. mentioned this term anti-influencer and your incredible growth on TikTok and I'm sure other platforms. So you are an educator at heart, like you're educating hundreds of thousands of actually millions of people because only a subset of people who probably watch a video will subscribe uh, if it's anything like osmosis videos about these common topics what are some of like so tell us a bit about that journey what got you into it kind of what content people are asking for i know you answer yeah. a lot of these common questions so again i'm looking at this from a frame of like people listening to this are going to be our current or will be future primary care doctors or nurses mm-hmm. they have a whether it's a 15 year old coming into their clinic or a 50 year old and asking them these questions um, you're the one who's answering tons of these in like a native format of tiktok and probably other things what are some of the questions that you're getting uh, asked and like again tell us about the content trajectory yeah i would say uh, and i think maybe this is right for your audience is i actually never meant to do tiktok i i'm i define myself i'm definitely a millennial in the sense of like I don't understand Gen Z humor half the time. When TikTok first came out, I was like, this is an unhinged platform, not for me. The one thing I know, and I tell this advice to anyone, and especially brands or companies or, you know, people building personal brands on, like, how do we use social media as a platform to, like, you know, how do we grow on this platform? And I think one of the things I tell all, all people, like, we just we just have to accept that we're in an older space. We're not funny. We're not trendy, like not, we shouldn't be following any of those things. But the one thing I think we can offer is like whatever we've learned in our lifetime so far and like give because what people want to do is like they want to leave with knowing something else. And so for me, it became like my friend just pinging me all the time of like, hey, I have a sex question. Like what what happens if you like, you know, X, Y and Z or even at a bar, if someone knows what I do for a living, they'll be like, OK, can I ask you like 10 questions on sex advice and stuff like that? And so I realized it was a shame the amount that I'm sitting around reading sex research papers, like what's the latest thing, like what's the next sex research that's coming out, but not actually sharing that information because not everyone is going to sit around and read sex research papers like I do. And so it really just became a thing where I was like, okay, I need to use this platform to, I think, just tell people things I've learned about sex. And I did it on a whim. I mainly did it for my friends so that they can have something there. I'm like, oh, can you explain like female ejaculation? Like what actually is that? Like all of these things and just from what I know of it. And then it just became a thing where people were so curious and just have so many questions. And I think the questions... And it's the same reason why we, we even built this company. And it's the same questions we get now. And how I know that we have so much work left to do is the question is, am I normal, right? Like, hey, this thing happens during sex or like, I'm not, I don't feel like aroused or I'm not, my sex drive has changed or I'm on antidepressants and it's really changed my sex drive or I'm experiencing like post-pregnancy, like a difference in like, you know, sex, sexual function is different. My pelvic floor muscles, my orgasms aren't strong enough. And the question is like, am I normal? Is this a normal experience that everyone else experiences? And I think a lot of times when we go to, including myself, a lot of times when you go to a doctor, a doctor is not particularly equipped to tell you anything about sexual function in terms of like pleasure and orgasms, unless you 
happen to have a great doctor who's open and like willing to kind of have those conversations with you and just what's kind of out there in terms of knowledge. And so you're kind of left alone to be just not even know anything, any information or wondering and you're left to Google and Google's not going to, you know, it's a battle of SEO. And so it's, I think it just made people feel maybe comfortable. Like I always have to preface, like I'm not a doctor. I'm never giving medical advice. I'm really just telling like what I know so far or what what's out there in current research, what sex educators would tell you. And so I think the balance of just being able to give people even simple things, I think has been really cool to see people feeling like they have a place where they can ask a question or they can learn something that uh, is hard to be answered. Because I've definitely had the times where I'm at my OBGYN and I'm like, hey, like this happens. Like, do you think that's normal? And they're, and it's hard when it's always chalked up to like, oh, it might be your birth control or like your hormones or everybody's body is different. And then you're like, but like, why? And so I think it's fun to do that. And it's also just the fun side of no one's ever really seen what orgasm data looks like. And so being able to show that is have has definitely been like a cool experience for people, I think, to like take that and be like, oh, like that's cool that um, someone's even doing something in this space. That's that's awesome and super cool because, again, just from like, uh, you know, the, the core biofeedback data you're getting is itself valuable and interesting. But even like the engagement you're getting, the comments, the questions is also very interesting because these are things that maybe people aren't bringing up or maybe they are, but at the, not at the scale and volume that, that you have to their primary care docs, their nurses, their OBGYNs. And so I think in this, you know, what, if COVID has taught us anything and one of the reasons osmosis does what it does is the importance of education and helping people better understand their bodies and take take more control because the more they understand their bodies, the more engaged they become generally with their own health. And then yeah. the more, you know, the more engaged the patient is, the better generally. I mean, sure, you get the hypochondriacs, hypochondriacs. I would much rather have somebody who takes so much care and attention for their health uh, than someone who's totally disengaged and they show up in, you know, at 70 having smoked for 56 years and, you know, lung cancer stage four, it's much better to have the reverse problem, I think. Totally, totally. And I think, yeah, and it definitely like before I would say I was actually not even like a biohacker for myself. Like, I don't know, half the time, like, I don't know, like it could be this. And I rarely went to doctors for checkups, but it, there is something very powerful about knowing about your own body because who else knows it more on your daily day-to-day -day function of like what's changed what makes it feel different and so as much as I advocated for sexual wellness and sexual health I'm like dang yeah you should definitely do that for the rest of your body because no one else is going to advocate as hard as you will totally that's a great message I know we're coming up on time so I did have a, just a couple quick questions for you uh to, to wrap this up the first is, you know, obviously Osmosis is a teaching company. We have mm -hmm. courses on ECG, on medical procedures, and you know, endocrine disorders, et cetera. If you could snap your fingers and teach a course on something, or a, vi a video, or a course on anything to any audience, what would it be and why? I, granted, I know you're already doing this, but say you wanted Osmosis to create something, what would it be and why? God, I really would just be like everything to do with women's health, and I think. Everything we don't know, uh, learning a little bit about every single thing, especially I think, yeah, I think just sexual pleasure. Like, I think the question of like, why we there's such a high percentage of female sexual dysfunction, and then what the definition of female sexual dysfunction is, what it's correlated to, and how we actually help people, because I think right now there's so many supplements and different things out there, but is it really solving the main problem? So yeah, something in that realm. It's all totally fluid and spongy but yeah 
<laughs> well, I mean, it's all all related. And again, I think we're chipping away at it between kind of what you're doing uh, and what we're doing and what hundreds of other people, great people and companies are doing. Yeah. So maybe my category. answer was like anything and everything to do with health. <laughs> that's a good answer. I mean, again, that's, that's, that's not pretty achievable. We'll have that to you in two weeks or so. Okay, so. perfect. <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm all for it. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, two last questions. You know, we have a lot of early stage professionals in our audience. Again, many of them going to healthcare careers, but other, you know, digital health, other, other kind of careers. What advice would you give to them about approaching their careers? Oh, you know, I, I think the one advice that I've kept throughout the years, because it always changes, like the more I learn about myself and the world and how I view the world. But I think really, the only thing that really carries in life is like how passionate you are about something. The moment you're like, oh, I don't know, maybe this is something interesting. It's never going to carry because there's going to be so many hard times in your life where things get so hard for your career or life decisions. And I think the one thing that will carry through is how passionate and how mission driven are you about this specific thing? Because that's the stuff, especially let's say like you're starting a company like it's I would never wish on anybody unless they're just so, uh, so wild to be like, this is the thing that I want to do. And I'm so passionate about. And that passion is the only thing that's going to truly carry through the hardest times, because otherwise it's going to feel like a, a slog. So I would say just. Be very, very, very honest about yourself to yourself about what you're passionate about, but also be flexible to know that passions and values can always change or reprioritize. But really just be honest with yourself. Like what's your number one passion and priority and how do you how do you fulfill that for yourself? That's awesome advice. And I would I would add build up upon that if you let me that Please. To find, you know, you probably know Angela Duckworth wrote the book Grit, and she has, in that book, she talks about how do you find your passion, where a lot of people think, like, I need a, I'm born with a passion, like, suddenly, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, and clearly, like, in your case, in my case, like, we both have started companies that have done pretty well and reached a lot of people, but it wasn't like we were born, like, wanting to create blindness yeah. <laughs> and osmosis. You try it. You just start trying something, and then, like, over time, that may develop into a passion and may not. When you realize that you're staying up to read literature on female sexuality or in my case i was reading like articles on how do you learn how do you forget like just nobody could pay me to do it i was just doing it and so finding your passion like little put the cart before the horse where like once you find the passion boom and the second thing is as far as um you know you're an anti-influencer and i mentioned like when you want to find like your niche for what content you create in or what career you pursue doing something that you're so vocally or so interested in doing anyways, you know, like I, I mentioned, like you were reading sex papers and stuff. You probably would do that for like anyway, just to make you because yeah, yeah. you're just interested in it. And then nobody can outcompete you at that because nobody's as passionate about that as you. And that comes across when you create content or build a company. Um, and yeah, there'll be hard times. We've discussed this as entrepreneurs, but uh, because of that passion, you're going to go through it as you, as you said. Totally, totally. Yeah, it really is like the intersection of skills is what makes you powerful, right? Like there's like if you play, if you play the piano, there's going to be a billion people that are also good at the piano and maybe probably better than you. But it's the intersections that I think make us so interesting. And it, it is the one thing of like, I was so horrified about being an influencer, like a TikToker. But then I was like, oh, but it gives me this power to be able to share the things that I've learned about like this world and what I'm super passionate about. And it's just finding those intersections and being like, oh, I already like love talking to people. So this all just kind of works together. And I already love being really short and sweet and to the point. So 
uh, it all kind of comes together. So yeah, I think just figuring out the passions between like all the little inner interdisciplines and all of that. Totally. My last question, anything else you want to get across to our audience before we let you go? Oh, not, I don't know. I think it's just really like, I love, I mean, I appreciate you for giving me the platform to even talk about sexual function. I think especially, I would still say like orgasms and women's sexual pleasure. Masturbation is such a taboo topic to this day. Like I think especially people always are surprised when I say like the U.S. has always been the most interesting place to have built the company. I think it's one of the hardest places to have built the company. There's so much taboo and red tape that's constantly being around for censorship and all of that. So I like I think it's just being able to give people the seed of like, hey, what if we look at orgasms or sexual pleasure beyond just it feels good? Like, what if there is something measurable or like the overall health implications to it? I think it's just cool to leave people with that and being like, oh, like the next time you have an orgasm of like feeling like, oh, what does that mean? Or like, how did that feel? And kind of giving yourself the time to reflect on it, I think is it's kind of cool. Like it's a cool new way to think about pleasure. I agree 100%. I think the next wave we're going to see, especially with AI, psychedelics, all these things coming out, totally. is human human flourishing. Like I think that's like going to be the core term in like the 2030s or 2040s. And clearly what you're doing is helping lay the foundation for a lot of that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. But yeah, I think thank you so much for having me. This is like cool to be able to be on something that's like more like in the health space and all of that and education. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and we'll definitely link out to Linus and your your LinkedIn stuff Please, so people yeah. can contact you. Hopefully, some of the people listening will dedicate their careers to, to research in this. Yes, you can reach out. we need more people in this <laughs> space. So please, like, please come. Um, it's a really cool. It's a really really interesting space, and you learn so many funny things, and you always have a funny story out of it. So it's a good place. Hundred percent. Well, again, Anna, thanks for taking the time to be with us. And more importantly, for the work that you've done, I think to destigmatize and shed light on an understanding on female sexual health. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And with that, I'm Shivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.